Today's scripture is from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. He asked, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. And he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind can come out only through prayer. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Teresa. Now, some of you know this about the way I operate, but I like to plan out my sermons far in advance. I've gotten into habit over the years of making a preaching calendar every summer that goes from July to July. I just find that things go smoothly for everyone who's involved in planning worship if we all know where we're headed far in advance. That doesn't mean I've written all those sermons, of course, no. I just have a scripture in mind and a theme and a title picked. And, and once that plan is made, very, very rarely do I ever deviate from it. Only once, actually, in my whole ministry career, only once have I changed a sermon completely the day before I preached. I did that on Saturday, December 15th, 2012. That was the day after the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. You, many of you remember that horrific event where mostly first graders were the victims. It happened on a Friday. And all that day, as I watched the news, I stewed on whether or not I could go ahead and preach the sermon that had been planned for our Advent series. By Saturday morning, I decided, no, can't preach it. I need a new sermon. 
Okay, okay, great, got the decision made. Except, oh, now I have to figure out what to say following such a tragedy. What do we say about God in moments of such extreme suffering? The question that I suspected would be hanging in the sanctuary, hanging in the air that next day was, why does God allow such horrible things to happen? Why does God allow things like Sandy Hook to happen? Or the earthquake that happened in Haiti in 2010 where 200,000 people were killed in an instant. Or this COVID-19 pandemic that has killed 3.5 million people worldwide so far and has changed all our lives. Or why does God allow cancer to happen? Or sexual assault or bankruptcy or ALS? If God is so good and loves us so much, why does God let suffering happen in our world, in our communities, in our lives? Why? That is one heck of a question. It's maybe the hardest theological question to answer, and I suspect that it's the question that has raised the most doubts in the minds of the most people over the whole history of the Jewish and Christian faiths. Number one reason for doubt, why does God allow suffering in the world? Today we're starting a new sermon series, I have my doubts. We're going to be talking about, what do you think? Anybody guess? Doubt! Oh, you're so smart. We're going to be talking about doubt and the role that it plays in our life of faith. Now, if you have people in your life who think churches never talk about real stuff, or who say, you know, church is just that place where you're supposed to blindly believe, you're not supposed to think, Or if you have someone in your life who once was really active in church, but then found themselves weighed down with debt, I hope that you will share this sermon series with them. It is easier than ever to do that. You can invite them to come with you to church, of course, or you can go and find the video of today's worship service on our YouTube channel or on our Facebook page and figure out where the sermon starts in that video and and send the link to your friend or your family member and a note saying, hey, the sermon starts here at this timestamp and say, I think this might be encouraging for you. Why don't you listen? So do that for me, would you? I want to start by saying that in this series, I am not going to solve all your doubts. I'm also not going to arm you over the next four weeks with with airtight arguments so that you can go to your friends or family who raise objections to parts of the Christian faith and just you know, lay them out with your strong arguments. I don't have any intention of erasing all your doubts or equipping you to erase somebody else's doubts because I think fundamentally that doubt is healthy. Hello, I said it. Doubt is healthy, mostly. It can be dangerous. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. But in general, doubt is healthy, and it is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Writer Anne Lamont says it this way, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith, she says, includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, the discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. So doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. Think about this. Certainty is the opposite of faith. If we're certain... If we feel we have an airtight, factual case that cannot be disproven, if we are 100% certain of something, there's no need for faith. There's no room for faith. If you can prove something by evidence and facts, you don't need faith. 
It's when we come to something we cannot prove by evidence and facts, when we encounter something that goes beyond what we can see and touch and hold, that's when we have to employ faith. So to believe that God is real, that takes faith. We can't prove it 100%. There's this space. There's this space between what we can know with complete certainty and what we believe, and that space gets bridged by faith. And because there's this space, there's this gap, there is room for doubt. So doubt becomes not the opposite of faith, but doubt is the companion to faith. Anything that takes faith leaves some room for doubt. As we jump over this gap from what we know to what we believe, as we jump over that gap with faith, we take some doubt along with us. And the scripture that we read for today reminds us of this way that faith and doubt are companions. It's a healing story that we find in the Gospel of Mark, one of the last healing stories, in fact, in the Gospel of Mark. And next week, we're going to talk about the difficulty of believing in miracles. So I don't want to focus in on that part of this story, but rather I want us to to look closely at the way the father responds to Jesus in the story. This father, he's a very sick son, and he wants Jesus' help. He wants to believe that Jesus can heal his son who appears to have some kind of epilepsy. He's being tortured by these repeated and violent seizures. But the father, he's not sure. He's not sure that anything could be done for his son. And it doesn't help that when the father first brings his son to the disciples to ask for healing, the disciples can't get the job done. Why not? Well, Jesus, he says this kind of weird thing at the end. He, he says to the disciples, it's, this kind can only come out through prayer. But we have to remember that in the Gospel of Mark, more often than not, the disciples, they don't get it. Right? They're bad at faith. They're bad at understanding what's going on. And so this failure of theirs to heal the boy, to me, it's just one more moment of inadequacy in a long string of inadequacies that the disciples have in the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus is like reminding the disciples that they just have a lot of growing in their faith to do. The disciples have failed to heal the boy, and so the father, he asks Jesus for help. He wants Jesus' help, but he's not sure if Jesus can help. I would guess the suffering of his son has him so stricken with grief that he's not sure of anything anymore. So he says, if you're able, Jesus, if you're able, Jesus actually does not love the way this man asks for help. I read this, and I see that Jesus is pretty testy in this passage. Testier than I like for Jesus to be, I will admit to you. But there you go. Jesus is doing his own thing. Okay. So he says to the Father, he repeats the Father's words. He says, if you are able, if all things can be done for the one who believes. To which the father says, what I think is one of the most honest things that anybody says in all of scripture, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I believe, God, or at least I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Help me let go of my doubts. Help me shed my fears. Help me step over these obstacles. Help me cross that gap from what I know to belief. God, give me faith. Help my unbelief. I want to believe. It's a beautifully honest prayer. And following that prayer, Jesus heals the man's son. I think this is so important for us to pay attention to, that the son is healed, because the man did not exhibit a perfect faith. 
Elsewhere in the gospel, we see people who do exhibit this kind of perfect faith, this complete faith in Jesus, people who who believe so strongly that they come to Jesus and they have this instantaneous healing. Like we think about the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years and, and just touches the hem of Jesus' cloak and she's instantly healed. It would be easy for us to read this story and say that Jesus is saying you'll only get what you want if you believe strongly enough, that, that God's action is somehow dependent on the strength of our faith. But if we read closely, we see nobody in this story has strong faith. Nobody. Okay, and Jesus, he's testy about it, right? He tells the crowd that they're a faithless generation. He tells the disciples they haven't mastered the power of prayer, and the Father himself confesses his unbelief, and yet, with not a single person in the whole story managing a deep and abiding faith, Jesus heals the boy. Jesus sets the boy boy free, restores him to life. So the healing comes because of who Jesus is, not by what the people in the story did or how strongly they believed. Now, Jesus, he does say something pretty bold. He says, all things can be done for the one who believes. And that might tempt us to think again, if we only had a strong enough faith, God will do what we ask. But read carefully with me. Jesus doesn't say all things will be done for the one who believes. He said all things can be done, can be done. This is a promise about Jesus' power, not about what Jesus will automatically do. This is a story focused on Jesus' power, his power that's so mighty, so great, so strong, he can heal any situation, he can cast out any demon, he can still any storm. He can, but nowhere does the scripture promise that he will. Well, why not? Why doesn't God just fix all the ways that we're suffering? especially if we pray hard and we pray earnestly. Why does God allow suffering in the world? It is such a good question. Such an important question that the Bible itself asks this question. We find the scripture itself wrestling with this hard thing of suffering in the world in the face of a good and loving God. You ever heard Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In other words, how long do I have to suffer like this? Or Psalm 94 says, How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless, and they say, The Lord does not see the God of Jacob does not perceive. So the psalmist is pointing out the evil prosper, and it looks like God is nowhere to be found. If you have ever felt that way, even even just for a few minutes after watching some horrifying news, if you've ever had this thought where the suffering in the world causes you to doubt the goodness or the presence of God, you are in good company. People of faith have been feeling that way on occasion for over 3,000 years. But doubt isn't just something we see in the Psalms. Abraham and Sarah, they they doubted the promise of a child. They actually laughed about it. Job doubted God's goodness. Moses doubted that God could use him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Gideon doubted God could use him to turn aside Israel's oppressors. The nation of Israel, they seemed to be in a constant state of doubt. 
And Jesus' disciple Thomas, of course, he doubted that Jesus rose from the dead. Doubt is everywhere in the scriptures. It's incredibly human, and it doesn't cancel out our faith. Now, there are a lot of churches that have gotten this wrong over time. Maybe some of you grew up in churches like that. I've heard too many stories about people who grew up in churches that didn't allow any questions, didn't have any room for doubt. Just believe, they said, just have faith. And if anyone asked questions or raised doubts, well, that was as good as not believing the Bible at all. And so children and adults in those settings who asked good questions, hard questions, normal questions, they get told to be quiet, or they get shamed, or they get told there's something wrong with them for having doubt. Author Philip Yancey has said, as a child, I attended a church that had little room for inquisitiveness. If you doubted or questioned, you sinned. So he says, I learned to conform as you must in a church like that. Meanwhile, those deep doubts, those deep questions, they didn't get answered in a satisfactory way. And the danger of such a church like that is that by saying, don't doubt, just believe, you don't really resolve the doubts. They just tend to resurface in more toxic form. I believe doubt doesn't have to be shut down. It doesn't have to be pushed out. It doesn't have to threaten our faith. Rather, as a companion, it can strengthen our faith. I love the story that the writer Kathleen Norris tells about how she had been away from church for a long time, and she found herself drawn to this Benedictine abbey near her home in South Dakota. And she began to worship there regularly and talk with the monks, and she found that they were completely unconcerned with her objections to Christianity, these serious problems she had that kept her away from church for so long. And she said, I was a bit disappointed (laughs) I had thought my doubts were spectacular obstacles to faith, and I was confused but intrigued when an old monk blithely stated that doubt is merely the seed of faith, a sign that faith is alive and ready to grow. We then, who are left with doubt and faith side by side, what do we say about God when we see such horrible suffering in the world? The most honest answer to the question of why does a good and loving God allow such awful things to happen in the world, the most honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I can't solve that for you completely. I can say that there is much about God's will and God's ways in the world that I don't understand. God is God, and I am not. That's the answer that Job got from the whirlwind. So God knows things that I don't know. And God does things that I don't understand. And God has given us free will and allows people to do really stupid and harmful and evil things instead of controlling every moment of the day. And I do not like it. But it's what God has decided to do. Now, does that answer erase all doubt? No, not at all. But does it help us build the bridge from faith, of faith, toward belief? I think that it does. My challenge to you this week is to spend some time in prayer sharing your doubts with God. Tell God some of the things that bother you the most about the world. Tell God where you struggle to believe. God is rather doubt-tolerant. Philippians, he says, God can handle hearing it. 
In fact, I believe God is pleased when we open up our hearts completely and share all of ourselves, even our doubts. Praying is itself an act of faith and can carry our doubts to God's listening ears in ways that help, in ways that help them decrease and our faith increase. So may it be so. Amen.